Amen. You can be seated, and uh, we'll dismiss our school-aged kids to the back. And as they are moving back, uh, I'd invite you to open your Bibles up to uh, Exodus chapter 4. We're going to continue our study through the book of Exodus. Uh, This is the uh, fourth or fifth sermon in. And um, it's pretty cool what God is doing uh, in the life of Moses and how it resonates even with us. And I am so thankful, uh, and I have been, just the last two weeks, this chapter 3 and 4 of Exodus, as God calls Moses, has been very encouraging to my heart. Um, Because I identify with a lot of the excuses that Moses gives and his hesitancy Um, to kind of jump in and follow exactly, you know, what God was leading him. When we look at the New Testament, we see God calling uh, Paul or leading Paul as we finish the book of Acts. And Paul is like just so just ready to just jump in, even if I have to die. It doesn't matter what you're calling me to do. I want to do it. And uh, I often don't identify that kind of boldness in my life. Um, What I identify with here is Moses of of like, where, where, where? Where are we going? Um, Who am I going to tell them that you are? Uh, Again, we kind of keep going through these. So to kind of catch you up, if you're um, new uh, to the book of Exodus, um, it's the second book in the Bible, and it is the story of God taking his people out of Egypt, um, where they have been and been flourishing and been growing in number, and leading them to a place called the promised land, where God is going to a land that God had previously, centuries before this, promised a man named Abraham that God would eventually lead his people uh, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And there's a lot of obstacles they're going to have to do to get there. And there's a lot of parallels in this story of God's people in the Old Testament. And even us today, as uh, even where we live, this journey that we're on, this is not our home, but we are headed to a place uh, to spend eternity with God. So last week, and chapters 3 and 4 are kind of the whole same situation. So we're going to kind of be uh, just jumping in. So I just want to recap quickly. Moses in chapter 3 meets God. The whole burning bush, right? Moses knows the stories about God and even felt a general sense that he was made for something special. We see this 40 years before this incident. He had kind of felt this call, but it was the wrong timing and the wrong way. And Moses tried to do it out of his own power. And he saw uh, an Egyptian abusing one of uh, the Israelites and he killed the man and tried to hide him in the sand. And yet the next day, it kind of comes out that everybody knows. And so Moses runs as fast as he can to the desert of Midian. And he's in Midian, and he uh, finds his wife there, and he becomes a shepherd working for his father-in-law. So Moses is there for 40 years as a shepherd before this event takes place. Again, he had this kind of general sense that he was made for something, but maybe at this point he's so self-defeated because things had not happened according to his timeline. Again, my heart resonates with this because I always want God to move at a quicker pace than he currently moves. But everything that God does is in perfect timing. Here in the text from last week in Exodus 3, we see God speaking to Moses from a burning bush. There's a bush that's on fire. It piqued Moses' interest. Not that it was on fire, that was a pretty common occurrence in the desert. 
but that it was on fire without being consumed. And so Moses goes over to investigate. God speaks to Moses. If you remember this from last week, he calls Moses by his personal name and uses it twice as this kind of way that communicates a relationship. Moses, Moses. And then he instructed him to take off his shoes because he was on holy ground. And so today I want to talk about God's call on our life. Sure, we're going to use the text of Moses, but in general, I just want us to be aware that to know God is to be called by him. We live in a very self-serving, hyper-individualistic culture, one that looks at almost every opportunity through the lens of how will this benefit me? And in a sense, this is where we find Moses. He's interested in the, in, the, in the bush that's not consumed, like this special magic trick. He goes over to kind of check it out. But this experience would radically change his life. And so we get more definition and context of what it means to follow God just in general. To be a Christian is not something that we just add to our life to make it more interesting or to bolster up our weaknesses. No, this is a life-changing, paradigm-shifting kind of experience. And many of you may have had that experience. You may have had a burning bush type of experience where normally it probably wasn't, uh, weren't burning shrubs, but uh, maybe walking through a real difficult time in your life when you realize that there's something more. Maybe it's this holy discontent from where you're at and you think, man, I think God is doing something. He's calling me to something. And as this holy frustration builds, we get to meet the God of the Bible. And not just to meet him, but to know him. To know God is to be called by God. I feel like there's these two camps, right? Of these people who think that um, to be a Christian is just to believe the right things and we're going to go to heaven when we die. And then there's this other group of really special uh, Christians um, who have this additional call on God's life that God wants to do something special with them. And the truth is, those are not two categories in the Bible. To be called by God, to know God, is to be called by God. As a matter of fact, you can't know God unless he's called you. Romans 3 says it this way, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands and no one seeks for God. So if you even have this general sense that God is there and he's, uh, uh, he's at work and uh, in heaven and hell, if, uh, hell, if there's this general sense of this, it's because God is illuminating those things to you. 1 Corinthians 1 talks about it like this. This is Paul writing to the entire church, not to just special Christians. He says, when you were called, he says in verse 26, 1 Corinthians 1, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards or powerful. Not many were noble birth. For consider your calling. In essence, Paul saying, Everyone who knows God has been called of God. And this is what I want us to wrestle with. Because I believe a lot of people in the church don't really understand what that means to be called by God. We talked last week, just the nature of God's calling as he introduces himself to us. He calls us in. He knows things about us, right? We've been called in on this relational level to know God. But yet, just as radically as we've been called in, we've been radically sent out. And this is where we find Moses struggling, right? He's been called in. He's experiencing who God is. He meets God. He gets God's name. And yet he continues to bring up these objections. He objects five times. In our verses today, we're going to look at the, uh, 
The third, fourth, and fifth objection. But he's already had two. His first one is in Exodus 3.11. He says, who am I? His second, he says, well, who are you? To who am I? The Lord says it doesn't matter. To who are you? The Lord says, I am that I am. Today in the last three, we're going to look at these and see how these even apply to us. In Exodus 4.1, he says, well, what about them? What if I go to Egypt and the, and the elders don't listen to me? To that, God says, they'll listen. And here are some signs. His two final objections is in verse 10 of chapter 4, I can't. And then in verse 13, I won't. And I want you to see that all of these objections, the key kind of posture of Moses is the wrong focus. Moses is focusing everywhere but God. Who am I? He's focusing on himself. Who are you? And that's not even really to know who God is. He's just saying, they're not going to believe me. He's focusing on the problems in front of him or his past failures behind him. And because his eyes, right, are on either himself or on the problems over the hill, he doesn't see the God of all gods who made everything, who's literally speaking to him in a, in a, in a bush that's on fire. And he just doesn't get it. He doesn't put the two together. His focus is a lot like our focus, isn't it? We make our problems big and our God small. Big problems, small God. Big challenges, little God. And what God tells Moses, again, every time as he deals with these objections, he says, Moses, quit looking at that. Look at me. Look at me. Almost like Peter walking on the water with Jesus, right? In the moment that he takes his eyes off of Jesus, he begins to sink. It wasn't because the waves got bigger. No, it was because Peter's focus changed from having his eyes on the one who made the water to himself and the problems that are around him. Let's jump in the text in chapter 4. I know you're just getting comfortable. Would you stand with me as we read this first section of God's Word? Read through verse 10. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. And so he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. The Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. And he put it back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, maybe they believe that they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even in these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become like blood on the dry ground. Maybe seated. This is the word of the Lord. 
His third objection, what if they don't believe me? Again, he's not even talking about Pharaoh at this point. He's talking about the elders of Israel, the God-fearing people. What if they don't believe me? It's amazing the things that we try to reason with God in concerning our obedience, is it not? Parents, maybe you see this with your kids. Hey, I need you to go, I need you to go clean your room. And maybe this hypothetically happens in my house where the kids start giving me all the reasons why either their room is clean and it's really not or they can't clean. Sometimes uh, little Hudson just gets so overwhelmed. He just busts out in tears like, there's no way. Have you seen my room? Yes, at least go get started on it and then we're going to kind of come and help. He goes in there and plays. This is, this is what Moses is doing with God. God is saying, listen, Moses, the God of the Bible that opened my mouth and spoke out the very sun and, and the earth and the world, the Colossians says at this very minute, right, is holding together all things in whom it says all things hold together. Like the very thing that makes your molecules stick together, that forms matter, that forms you as a person, is being held together by God himself. And the moment that he wants us not to be held together, he will just quit thinking of us and we will just vanish into thin air. This is the God who is speaking to Moses. But Moses cannot get over any of the steps. God just saying, Moses, I want to use you in incredible ways. Just take my hand and we're going to go do this. And again, Moses, just objection after objection. And then we get to this one that says, you know what? I just don't even know. I don't, I don't know if they're even going to believe me. What if they don't listen? Okay, it doesn't matter who I am. Fine, Moses says. I know a little bit. And now I know a little bit about who you are, Moses is thinking. But what if I tell them and they say, um, I don't believe you. You didn't talk to the Lord. And this seems like a reasonable question, but we have to keep in mind, again, this is partnered with uh, chapter 3 we talked last week. In verse 18 of chapter 3, God promises Moses, and they will listen to your voice. Moses has a functional faith problem. I'm glad none of us in here deal with anything like this. Moses is just having a really hard time trusting God. Surely, so God shows him these signs, and surely these signs were chosen for a reason. All three hint at the superiority of the Lord over Egypt. It's a theme that's going to become much more developed as we move through the, uh, the subsequent chapters in the book of Exodus, that God, the God of the Bible, is more powerful than their little G-gods. The serpent was the God that they worshipped over the lower Nile. The snake or the cobra was the symbol of Pharaoh. And God says, I'm going to take your staff and turn it into a serpent and it'll eat up the Pharaoh's snakes. Wasn't this a, just a crazy symbol? One, I, I love uh, as it says, let's see in verse 4, it's a little dash in my Bible, I don't know what it is in yours. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. 
Well, even go back in verse 3, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground. It became a serpent. And what did Moses do? This man of all men, he ran from it. Like this, uh, listen, this is, a, this is an experienced shepherd who has been in the desert and likely had seen many snakes. So whatever kind of snake this thing turned into was one uh, bad kind of snake. So much so that as soon as it turned into a snake, Moses ran. You ever met those like men of men? Like one time I saw my grandfather grab a snake by the tail and just like whip it and his head flew off. And it was like, oh, so that's what you do. I'm more like Moses and uh, ah, scream. And uh, I love this dash, though, because then the Lord keeps going in verse four. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail and then the dash. And I think there's like an hour and a half in between that time where he's looking at the bush and he's looking at the snake and he's looking back at God. <laughs> by the tail, really? You're not supposed to grab by the tail, they'll bite you. So he puts out his hand and caught it and it became a staff again. God was showing Moses that he was more powerful than the symbol of Pharaoh. The Nile was also worshipped. It was quasi-divine. It was the place of fertility and life. All the Egyptians worshipped it. And God said, listen, I can turn the whole thing into blood. The thing that they worship as their life source, the thing that has made them such a great nation, I can change its molecular structure in an instant. The leprous hand was an attack on their quest for health and immortality. It was a disease that was incurable and it was a very painful and long-lasting disease as people's bodies just literally began to fall apart. God is saying to Moses, look Moses, I know what I'm doing and Egypt is no match for me. Remember his objection is, what if they don't listen to me and God gives him some signs? Let's go to the next one, this fourth objection. He says, I can't. Verse 10, but Moses said to the Lord, oh my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach what you are to speak. To cut to the chase, Moses tells God, God, I can't do what you're asking me to do. This sounds like a good plan. Sounds like a great idea. I can't do it. And his objection is in the fact that he says that I cannot speak well. I love too, kind of in his excuse, like, God, I've never been able to speak very well. And uh, he says, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. What has that been like, 20 minutes that he's saying this is not getting better? And we can understand partly, right, this call, this diplomatic mission that Moses is going to go out on is going to be, uh, it's going to involve a lot of high pressure speaking. He's going to be before the most powerful man on the earth at that moment. 
in the most impressive kingdom on the face of the earth. We can understand him feeling a little unqualified. But on the other hand, it's hard to be too sympathetic because uh, Moses right now is arguing with God, the God of the universe. And he seems to be doing pretty good at coming up with things to tell him. Scholars have long discussed and debated exactly what Moses' excuse is founded in. Some think it's just Eastern humility. Like, oh, I couldn't do that. Like, oh, man, no, not me. No, I couldn't do that. Like if uh, we're at a restaurant and you offer to to pay for the meal, um, which I'm always excited about. Thank you for that. And my wife elbows me and like, you know, like I should be offering. And so we do this, oh, no, let me get it. No, let you get it. And then... I'll let you get it. Um, Like this, like Eastern, you know, kind of this humility kind of thing. Like, you know, what? God, me? No, God, I couldn't couldn't do this. Some people, scholars say it's just honest self-doubt. He really doesn't think he could do this. Remember, he has spent the last 40 years talking to sheep, not people. Certainly not kings. Maybe it's a real speech impediment that he has. The literal translation of verse 10 means heavy-tongued. There's a rabbinic tradition that says Moses had injured his lip when he was really young, burning it with a hot coal, and that caused him uh, difficulty forming his words at a young age. And so he, he had a hard time getting his lips and tongue coordinated that he could actually speak. But in the end, we can't be sure, and I think God probably doesn't want us to know exactly what it was or wasn't wrong with Moses, but I'm sure that all of us can appreciate this. If Moses understood himself to have a problem with his speech, and I think there's real uh, every indication to think he, his perception was that this was a, a really difficult thing for him to do. So he says, Lord, I can't do this. You're giving me a job that is chiefly to go and speak, to speak to the Israelites, to the elders, the most important people on earth, I'm not good at this. As a matter of fact, this is like not even, you know, a fruit on my tree. I'm not gifted this way. I have a real problem. And God answers Moses' objection really in two ways. First, he shifts the attention from Moses, from Moses about his insecurities towards God's power by asking that question we read, who made man's mouth? I love this because even just in the phrase itself kind of communicates, uh, kind of brings Moses' attention from his inability or his perceived inability to what God can do. Who made man's mouth? And surely this is an important word. In our gift-obsessed, looks-obsessed, skills-obsessed, achievement-obsessed world, he says, Moses, I made you like that. And he says to us, church, I put your DNA together. I made your mouth and your wit and everything about you. I know your weaknesses very, very well. It wasn't that I called you to be on, be part of the team and forgot, right, that you had all the difficulties. No, God knows us perfectly. And yet he wants to work through our insecurities to display his great power. 
The second way that God answers Moses, and I love this, he says, I will be with you. I'll be with you, Moses. I'll be with your mouth. I'll be strong in your weakness. Verse 12, now therefore go and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. Isn't this the point of 2 Corinthians 4, if you remember it? I think I have this on the screen, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Isn't that reassuring to you? of all the things that God has called us to, that it is not about you. Not about your weaknesses and strengths. It's not about necessarily your experiences or even your future. This, is, this really has nothing to do with you. And everything to do with God. Little me, big God. That's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians. The treasure is not in the jars. The jars are only the vessel. The treasure is what's in the jars. Moses, the point is not your mouth, man. The promise is that I'm going to do this. This is me working through you. It's the way that every great commission ends. If we look through every different account of the great commissions through the Gospels and in the book of Acts, in some way, every time God lays out this great commission, that you're going to be my witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And every time he says, and I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to go with you. And my presence is going to be with you. Go wait for the Holy Spirit. Because when the Holy Spirit comes, power is going to come. And we're going to be, and I'm going to be with you. This is the promise, church. This is not bolstering up our insecurities. This is just saying, hey, this is not about us. This is about God. It's the prayer of John the Baptist, right? That we have to decrease while God increases. And maybe that's a prayer that you should join me in praying every day. God, let me decrease and you increase. But look at his last objection. Please send someone else. But he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. His last objection is just like, okay, I've pulled out all the ones, you know, who am I? God, who, who are you? Uh, what if they don't listen? Hey, man, I got this thing with my mouth. You know, this is not going to go well. Please, you know, to finally, you know what? I'm, I'm just not going to do it. I won't. Please send someone else. We get to the real heart of the matter. Moses just doesn't want to go. God has already told Moses three times to go. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Go and gather the elders of Israel. In chapter 3, verse 18, And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt. Then in chapter 4, and verse 12, Now therefore go. Three times, Moses, go. You're still here, man. Why are you still here? Go. Now finally, after this series of excuses, Moses reveals his real heart. Will you please send someone You identify at all with Moses here? Verse 14. 
Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you, and when he sees you, he'll be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth, and I will be with your mouth and with his mouth, and will teach you both what to do. And he shall speak for you to the people, and he shall be your mouth, and you shall be as God to him. Meaning God was going to speak to Moses, and Moses was going to speak to Aaron. Verse 17, and take your staff, and take in your hand this staff, which you shall use to do the signs. God's certainly growing more and more frustrated with Moses. You know, this is the first time in the Bible so far that we see the anger of the Lord. Now, certainly in the Old Testament with the garden and with the snake and, uh, and with the flood, it says that God's heart was moved and it was grieved. But this is the first time that we see God getting angry. It says his anger was kindled against Moses. God's certainly growing more and more frustrated with him. But look at his tenderness with him. He's still patient. He didn't respond to him after the fifth objection saying, okay, Moses, I've had enough, right? I'm glad I'm not God because I would have just, you know, smote him. Is that a word, smote, smited? Um, whatever you do to call lightning down on a person, this is what probably I would have done after the third objection. But what does God do? He just speaks to him and says, you know what? Aaron is already on the way. He's going to be glad in his heart. I've given him a gift too. He's really good with his mouth. So what does God give to Moses but a teammate, a sibling? And before we get too hard on Moses, maybe you can identify with some of these similar objections. Are you living out God's call in your life? What's he called you to? Maybe some of us aren't even close enough to him to even hear what he's called us to. We just got our focus. We've been navel gazing a long time, just looking at us, just saying, man, what is, what, is, what is my life about? And we're not looking up to see what God wants to do or what he's doing. We're not listening to him. Maybe we've grieved the spirit. You know, I'm sure it's true in a room this size that God has spoken to you pretty clearly about what your next steps are. And maybe that was five years or 10 years or 15 years ago, and you're still just not being honest with him. You're still just giving excuse after excuse of why you can't do it again and again. Maybe you can identify with the posture of your heart towards God's call in your life. I, I want to see just a few things. I want a few points of application for us about God's call. Remember at the beginning I said to everyone who knows God as, as, as Father and Jesus as Savior has been called. What's God calling you to do? First, God's call requires a step of faith. And that step is always away from your control. It's a step away from your control. To trust Jesus as Lord is to give him full control. This is what God is saying with Moses. Moses, take off your shoes. It's a step away from your comfort and what you know. Maybe it's a call to go out on a limb and trust him in, with your finances. Or maybe he's calling you to relocate to another place or even move neighborhoods. 
Maybe his call upon you, his nudge in your heart is to invite someone over for dinner, to open up your home, and that's a difficult and scary thing. Every time God calls us, it requires a step of faith, and it's a step away from our control, and it's a step out of our comfort. To leave a life that we know and to walk into the unknown is always a scary thing. Moses had been very comfortable. He's 80 at this time. How many 80-year-olds do you know that want to relocate, right, and ultimately have a different occupation altogether? He says, you know what, God, just let me just finish out this thing in the desert. I know the desert really well. I know where the streams are. You know, these sheep don't argue back to me. Let me just kind of do this thing. But God was calling him into something more. If Moses would have just lived out his days as a shepherd in Midian, we wouldn't have known anything about him. Second thing about God's call is he usually takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. God just does this all through scripture. He takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. What do we have here? We have God speaking in a bush. There was only really two things in the desert. There were bush and there were sheep. He chose the bush and then a staff that every shepherd would have and then his cloak that every shepherd would have and then the river and then his mouth and on and on we could go. God took ordinary things and made them extraordinary. What's that in your hand? Throw it down. Catch it by the tail. Put your hand in your cloak and pull it out. Jesus did this all the time. You remember the feeding of the 5,000? What did he use? I thought about that. I thought, you know what? Jesus could have led them to a nearby river. He could have done the same thing that he did with the disciples. Hey, let's throw the net out. Let them participate in catching the fish. No, he didn't do that. No, he just used the, the loaves and the fish that were already there. And he said, let me take those that would feed one person, and I'm going to feed probably 10 to 15,000 people with this. God took the ordinary and made it extraordinary. Look at the disciples themselves. How many times in the book of Acts did people looking at them say, who, who are these just ordinary men speaking with such boldness? He just uses the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. Can I just be honest with you? Most of you, you're pretty ordinary. I know we, like, we live in a culture where we got to be the best at everything. And you need to remind your kids this all the time. Like, you're just pretty average. Um, there's nothing necessarily, you know, special about your talents. You're probably not going to play college soccer. I tell my kids this all the time. Yes, go practice and practice hard, right? But your worth is not in what you accomplish. We're all pretty just average, ordinary people. But this relationship with God, our availability to him and saying, God, take what I have. That's when God begins to do the supernatural. I love, as one uh, commentator put it, God was not looking for an order. He was just looking for a reporter. A reporter. I know that's simple. That has spoke to my heart all week. Because this is not anything that we've got to make up. We just got to testify to what God is doing. This is what God's doing. And we just testify to that. And then the work of salvation and, and the work of, uh, you know, uh, pushing back the kingdom of darkness and increasing the kingdom of light and the supernatural work and all these things. This is God's work, not our work. All we have to do, he's not looking for an orator, a polished speaker. He's just looking for someone that will testify to what God's done in their very lives. God takes the ordinary and makes it extraordinary. 
And to add to that, God doesn't just give us a new direction, but a whole new map. Right? That we, in our culture, right, that uh, we're all this uh, ambitious, reaching for, uh, striving for the American dream. And then we come to God and our whole paradigm shifts. He doesn't just change direction. Hey, take a left up here. He says, actually, you know, throw that away. This is the new map. It's not the American dream anymore. It's the kingdom of heaven. His call moves us from the center in which all things orbit around and rightly puts God at the center of all things. Our hopes and dreams and futures and vocation and family and strength and weaknesses and retirement and vacations and friendships all orbit around God and his call in our lives. And in doing so, when we give God the freedom, when we give God our lives, our lives get swept up into a greater story, much greater than we could ever have hoped or even dreamed. Moses traded in his quest for the great Midian dream to be a tool in God's hands. God doesn't just redeem us, but he redeems our past. He doesn't just redeem us and say, you know what, heaven is going to be reserved for you. He redeems our past, the times that we've been rejected, the Losses we've experienced, the sins that we've committed, the people that we've hurt and been hurt by. God takes all those things and in some supernatural way, he says that he works it all together for our good and his glory. How could he do that? Only a sovereign God could take all the pain and junk in my past and all the sin that I've committed and all the excuses that I've given. And he can in this moment continue working this together for my good and for his glory. What Satan meant for guilt and shame in our past, God can use as a platform of grace. Ephesians uses this term, trophy of grace. That as our lives have been transformed, not just just that we're redeemed, but even our past have been redeemed. Only God can take a wound so deep and hurtful that we hide it and we make excuses for it and we cover it up and bring healing. And so that scar becomes a testimony to what God has done in us. Just our testimony. This is all, again, that God is asking of us. He never once says, hey, Moses, I need you to go in there to Pharaoh and convince him. As a matter of fact, you remember chapter 3, and you're going to see in subsequent chapters, God says, listen, he's not going to budge unless I get involved. Finally, God's call in our life is not about who we are, but who he is. Take you back to that 1 Corinthians 1 passage. It mentions this idea of calling three times in that passage in verse 26. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus 
who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This is not about who we are, but who he is. And God's call in your life is unique. He's created you for it. He's put it in front of you. And he's asked you to take a step of faith and to hold his hand and that he would lead you. Of course, the story of Moses isn't the last story of the Bible, in the Bible about a royal prince who left the palace to go on a seemingly impossible rescue mission, is it? If you know the other story, you know it's about a royal son who did not say no. The Lord Jesus Christ, who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took upon himself the form of a servant to be made in human flesh and to become obedient to death, even the point of death on the cross. The Son of God did not say no. Perhaps him there in the garden, sweating drops of blood, pleading with his heavenly Father, is there another way? Nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. Church, the most important thing you can do with all your gifts and opportunities and weaknesses and impediments and obstacles is to worship and serve the one who said yes and give your whole life to him. And certainly there's people in this room. You feel like you're on the outside looking in. You don't even know what it, what it means to be filled with the Spirit and trusting God for your salvation and I think the invitation to you today is to, to trust him. To quit striving to please someone out of your own effort and to say, you know what, I, I, lay, I lay my boasting and my own self down and trust Christ and what he's done for you. Others of you, and I've done a lot of repenting this week in my own life, I can say for sure. When God calls... My first response is to argue with him how I'm not the person to do this. God, you got to send someone else. God, do you know how, you know how crazy you know, some of my friends are? Some of my neighbors, you know, you know how hard this is going to be to be your witness? To... God says again, Luke, this is not about you. This is about me. We're going to take communion here in a minute. And I love ending the service this way as the church has for a couple thousand years. It's just a reminder that this is not about us. Paul told the church at Corinth that when you take the Lord's Supper, that we should evaluate our own heart and see if there's any resistance to what God is doing and a disobedience or sin in our life so that we could take it with a clear conscience. And as we take it, Jesus would say that we're proclaiming his death until he comes again. So we take the bread and we dip it in the cup and we partake of it. And we're reminded, even as we chew and swallow the bread, that this is not about us. This is about what God's done. And he's calling to himself a new humanity. A city of God within the city of man. Who we've handed our rights over to him and said, God, this is not about me. And this is about you to use the language of Romans 12, that we would die daily to ourselves. We would be a living sacrifice and ask God to do great things. Let me pray for us. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone in just a minute. I'm going to give you just a few minutes kind of where you're at to 
Maybe you just ask God, God, what what are you calling me to? Certainly first to himself, to know him. But then so much more than that, that God is sending you out. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the death of your son Jesus on the cross so that we might have forgiveness of our sins, but even so much more than that, that we might have eternal life one day when we pass from this earth, but so much more than that, that you said the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would come and indwell us, those that put our faith and trust in you, would lead us into all truth, would bring conviction of sin, would be comfort to us when we're hurting and weary, would enable us with supernatural boldness and courage, enabling us to actually follow what you're asking us to do. So I pray for your church. Lord, may we take steps of faith and obedience today. Remind us as we participate in communion, we're part of your family. And of what you have planned for our lives as we submit to you in Jesus' name. Amen. You come and you're ready. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone.